Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Jim Mafood is the man of the hour, tower of power. Too hot to hold, too sweet to be sour. He's been on the channel a bunch of times, but we never did a proper shoot interview with the man yet. Uh, Mr. Mafood, before we get busy, man, what kind of stuff uh, do you have out in the wild that you want to let the people know about? And then we'll get to that career shit. Yeah, man, I have uh, actually my latest and greatest uh, creator-owned comic I've done so far. Girl Scout Stone Ghost Trade is available in comic shops. I've also got books, minis, and prints on my website, jimmafu.com, zestworld.com, if you guys want brand new Girl Scouts online exclusive strips, and at jimmafood on Twitter and Instagram for the social media madness. Let me uh, shout out to the Cartoonist Kayfabe audience that next Saturday is going to be Cartoonist Kayfabe comic book Christmas in July. The idea is that as makers, we are taking a bunch of our comp copies and a bunch of the doubles that we've accumulated over the years. We're going to the lo local lending libraries in our neighborhood, going to populate those things with uh, these comics, putting comics in front of the people who ostensibly must be literate if they want to go to that uh, free little lending library. Uh, reintroduce them to comics if they haven't uh, checked one out in a long time. Also, uh, if you like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit the bell. We can uh, notify you when new vids are available and that'll mitigate the kayfabe effect, which happens whenever we talk about certain comics, certain books. Uh, they disappear off the internet after uh, a couple of hours, uh, if not a couple of minutes, depending on how popular the piece is. And if you watch these videos to the end, that pushes our YouTube videos out to uh, a wider audience, spreads the word about cartoonist kayfabe, and uh, makes it possible for us to do these videos on a regular basis, man. Uh, so, Mr. Mafood. Uh, I say that because we've got two gyms in the house, and I don't want to confuse anybody. Uh, but St. Louis Cat, there is a long history of St. Louis comics, man. So so break some of that down. You know, when we dig into our quarter bins and we do that stuff, we look at Black Bow, we look at Lorenzo Lazana, that crew. Jim Lee comes from St. Louis. A lot of people don't yeah. know that stuff. So so drop, drop the science, man. What was the yeah. climate like out there? You got anim animism from Ed Decker, my buddy. Uh it's funny to see these some of these books too show up on like power comics and other Instagram feeds and kayfabe feeds of people that know this stuff and are finding it. But basically, uh, when I was a kid, St. Louis had these uh, comic conventions. They're like a swap meet style where you know people would just show up with metal folding tables and sell comics at this spot called the Culping House. It happened maybe four times a year, but eventually. In like 88, I saw Lorenzo and Ed Decker um, at these at this convention set up selling their own books that they were publishing under this Artline Studios label. So I was too nervous or shy to talk to them. But, you know, I, I bought some of these books and then hanging out in the comic shops. I also started hearing rumors of this Jim Lee dude who was St. Louis based, but working on like alpha flight like he's working for marvel and then he graduated up to punisher war journal um i think by the time he was on punisher he moved from st louis to san diego but just knowing that there were people in the st louis community uh, that were making comics and this was part of the culture denny o'neill also originally from st louis um so as a kid you know pre-internet you would just hear the rumblings of this stuff in the comic shop being talked about by like the older dudes that hung out there but again like i would never ask questions i was just like 
this 11 year old kid who was buying my monthly dose of GI Joe and Spider-Man and, but absorbing these things that were kind of going on. So eventually Lorenzo from Artline Studios, Lorenzo Lozana did see my art and um, kind of hired me as like his unofficial anchor and studio apprentice. And I would basically do grunt work of like, you know, erasing the pencils off of inked pages and um, basically just hanging out. Ed uh, Decker was based in Illinois, so I didn't see him as often, but I, I would hang out with Lorenzo a lot. And it eventually got to the point where I was traveling and doing conventions with these guys around the Midwest and um, interesting things started happening. Uh, a story I wanted to tell you guys real quick. That's perfect for kayfabe is we, me and Ed and Lorenzo went to a, convention in Chicago in like 92 before it was Wizard World. I think it was still Chicago Comic-Con. And I wound up working Jim Lee's merch table uh, of, of all things. Um, there was no Artist Alley and our Artline Studios booth just so happened to be set up next to Jim Lee's merch table. So Jim hadn't left to uh, do Image yet. He was still on X-Men. And he had this dude, his friend, this buddy of his, this guy, George, selling T-shirts and prints of his stuff. And then him, Will Spartacio, Scott Williams, every day they would sign in a different area. But he had this merch table set up selling his stuff. And if you bought a T-shirt or a print or both, you would then get the certificate to go get it signed by Jim Lee. So we didn't see Jim or any of these guys. We just saw the merch table. So we're sitting, I'm inking Lorenzo's commissions he's doing. And on day one, this dude is just completely overwhelmed with selling Jim's merch. And he looks over and he's at me and he's kind of like, Hey kid, can you like jump up and help me like for a minute? Like I'll pay you. And I asked Lorenzo, Lorenzo's like, yeah, go for it. So I'm like behind the, the, the table throwing this dude, you know, t-shirts or prints, whatever he needs. And eventually, you know, the long story short is we wind up meeting Jim and Walsh and Scott Williams and uh, Carl Allstetter was their studio assistant at the time. And he was just a couple years older than me. So him and I kind of like bonded and he was kind of our go-to guy of, hey, Carl, can you like hand our comics to Jim Lee and them? Like, can you let them know what we're doing? And the weirdest thing is that first night we went out to this arcade in Chicago. And as we were walking into the arcade, the other set of doors coming in, Jim Lee and the whole crew were also walking in. And we all made eye contact and they were like, oh, hey, you guys. And I was like, what's up, Carl, George? So we all wound up hanging out and kicking it in this arcade at night in Chicago together and playing each other in games. There was this game Battletech and I wound up playing Jim Lee, me versus Jim Lee in Battletech. Super crazy shit. So the weekend ends and George stays in touch with me and he calls me and he's like, hey, listen, man, you're a hard worker. Like, do you wanna come out um, on tour with us to different conventions? So. I asked my mom and dad if I can drop out of school <laughs> for, for like a month. I'm like a junior in high school at this point. I asked them if I can drop out of school to go work Jim Lee's merch table at conventions. And they're just like, 
absolutely not. You know, and <laughs> my mom made a good point. She was like, it's not even an art related job. It's just you selling t-shirts. That's not even, she's like, I know you're obsessed with like these art, these guys, Jim Lee, whatever. She's like, but you're not even learning the trade. And I was kind of like, Hmm, she's, she is right about that. So I didn't get to go on tour with those guys, but my parents made it up to me by letting me go with Lorenzo that summer to my first San Diego con. And we were showing around samples of the books we were doing at Artline Studios, just trying to get work or trying to get a bigger publisher to pick up our stuff. And um, it, it just so happened to be Jack Kirby's 75th birthday party. And Lorenzo and I got to meet Jack Kirby and shake his hand. And I've posted a photo. I do it. I post it at least like once a year on social media of me, 17 years old, like shaking the King's hand, really crazy, epic moment at the time. I thought it was cool. Like, Oh, I met Jack Kirby, the King of comics, but as a grown man and appreciator of, of comics and his work, it's so much more epic and significant to me now thinking like, holy shit, like I met the king, I met the god, the the main man, you know, and got to look him in the eye and say, thank you for the work. And it, it's, it's just, it means much more to me now, as you could imagine. So um, yeah, man, I got to get my feet wet at an early age with um, being associated with this local label. And then I took off and moved out of St. Louis when I was 18 and went to art school in Kansas City. And Lorenzo was my first mentor. And in Kansas City, I met my second mentor, which was Mike Huddleston, who's, you know, brilliant artist, uh, did decorum recently with Jonathan Hickman and uh, is to me a, a groundbreaking uh, genius auteur creator. So having him also kind of take me under his wing and I became his anchor on stuff that he was publishing. And he was doing a book called wireless and uh, we started working together, eventually became roommates, did the art school thing of moving into a big dilapidated house together with, it was at one point it was me, Mike, Nathan Fox, our buddy Jay and um, who else was in there and our buddy Anthony. And uh, it was just a, a, comics making illustration making factory of poor ramen eating 40 ounce swigging uh cartoonists you know and the school itself was okay i i went through the illustration and design program and i did learn some foundations and academics there but it was more of being around especially mike and nathan these guys that were much better than me that um just through osmosis, through literally being in the same space as them, breathing the same air, going into their rooms and listening to like what they were, had bumping on their boom boxes, what reference they were looking at. It just made me instantly a better artist and, and cartoonist. And it also helped me find my direction early on because Mike and Nathan were so gifted technically that I realized early on, like, I'm never going to be as good as these guys technically, like have the, this level of technical chops of the knowledge they have. So like, what am I going to do to stand out? 
And I was probably like really high one night, but it came to me and I was like, I know what I can do. I can be bugged out. I can be weird. I can go in a different direction. And at this time I was absorbing tons of Jamie Hewlett, you know, uh, all the Fanagraphics, creator-owned stuff, Dan Klaus, 8-Ball, Loving Rockets, the visionary guys that had their own style that were crafting their own universes and really their own brand in a way through what they were doing. And that was kind of like the light bulb moment of that's what I can do to stand out, you know? And at the same time, Mike and I were getting the occasional gig together as a penciler inker team. We did some stuff for DC Comics Showcase 95, uh, like a Legion of Superhero story. Um, we did three issues of Rust at Caliber. So we were kind of on the radar of Gary Reed, the, the publisher of, of Caliber. And we were friends with Phil Hester and Andy Parks at the time, also Midwest guys. And Phil was doing a book called Fringe, written by Paul Tobin. And uh, Phil would occasionally send me pages just to ink, like the backgrounds, that kind of stuff. Like, hey, dude, do you want to, there's no pay, but if you want to <laughs> do some work. And man, I, I said yes to everything. Like, I don't know about you guys, but like early in my career, I literally said yes to anything that anyone offered me. And that, I think that that brought me um, the experience of just knowing how to work with people, make deadlines, uh, deal with, you know, uh, being somewhat professional. And um, basically none of that stuff really worked out that great. And um, the rust thing, like, you know, the book didn't sell well. And um, <laughs> the writer of the book rust, he was getting Mike and I's original pages and, this was early days of computer stuff. And he was scanning all of our artwork at the wrong DPI. So when we got the printed copies of Rust, it was fucking heartbreaking mm -hmm. seeing the work. And he also added digital gray tones to the work, which we did not know he was going to do. And it looked bad. And so no disrespect to him, but it was just one of those things of like, Things you can, aren't you can working. disrespect him a little bit I for that. Saying, you I know like, like, okay, let's disrespect okay. him a touch. Here's what I'll say. A lot of makers watch this and stuff, and it's 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 not okay to change somebody's art, especially without yeah. talking to them. That's just not it's unprofessional. Like if you're involved in something like that, know that you're you're that's an unprofessional act by the person yeah. that's doing it. We yeah, we didn't know this was gonna happen. And um, you know, again, like we were paid zero dollars to produce this work. It was just do you want published work on the shelf in comic shops? Sure. We said, sure. You know, eventually Mike got a full-time gig at DC being the monthly penciler on Deathstroke, the Terminator with Dave Johnson doing these badass covers, but the editor refused to include me as the anchor and Mike put his heart and soul into these pages and his anchor was terrible. And was doing like some Vince Coletta type shit where he would just- Cartoonist Kayfabe is brought to you by the comics that Ed Piscor and I make. Red Room Trigger Warnings, the second season of Red Room, all self-contained stories, issues one to four, now available in comic shops everywhere. Red Room, the anti-social network, the trade paperback collection of the first season of Red Room, now available in comic shops everywhere. 
minus 28 countries where it's banned and 10 comic shops, but you can still request it there. And coming in September, the collection, the trade paperback of Red Room Trigger Warnings will be in stores in September. You can pre-order that now at your local comic shop or online wherever you buy your books. Hulk Grand Design Monster and Hulk Grand Design Madness in comic shops everywhere. The 60-year history of the Incredible Hulk. I am writing, drawing, lettering, coloring, the Grand Design treatment, retelling that 60-year history. And you can now pre-order the Hulk Grand Design Oversized Treasury Collection, uh, about 40 extra pages in that. It'll be in stores before Christmas, but you can pre-order it now in your comic shops or in your bookstores wherever you're, you buy comics. And now back to our regular scheduled programming. Mike's drawing these super elaborate detailed backgrounds. He would just black the backgrounds out, like silhouette them out. And it was so heartbreaking, man. Uh, we would get the comps sent to our, our place and Mike would just take the box of comps and like just throw it directly into the trash and not even look at it. And I was like, this is some heartbreaking shit, man. Like I really need to figure out what, I'm going to do and like what my place is in all of this. And, you know, like I mentioned before, I, I, I started self-publishing the, these books, these early Girl Scout books, 95 Cosmic Toast in 96. And um, best decision I ever made was to do my own thing. The book started to catch on in the Midwest, in Kansas City, St. Louis, Chicago. I was hustling these books myself and meeting you know, phone calling record stores, comic shops, getting them on consignment, driving around Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, whenever I was in these cities, hand delivering them to the stores and keeping consignment lists of, you know, who owed me money or whatever. But I started seeing people around Kansas City, like reading the book. Like I started seeing people in coffee shops, like reading the book and I, I, I kind of knew like, okay, I think I'm on to something here and I can run with this, you know? And then I went to the, this convention in 96 and, and, and wound up meeting Scott Lubdell and, and that led to the Generation X underground gig, which led to Clerks with Oni Press, Bob Shrek and Kevin Smith, which then launched the official freelance career that I've had uh, since then. So, all right, I have some questions. That's a lot of info. <laughs> a, I just gave you guys a lot. So, yeah. I... First, I'll, I'll sing some Mike Huddlestone praises. He's the guy who uh, I quit worrying about digital versus, you know, traditional media because I was looking at some of his stuff at a show and talking to him. And I swore what I was looking at was a print of a painting. And when I learned that it was not, that it was all digital, it was like, all right, I'm done disparaging. You know, there's no line anymore. Like you can do whatever you want with, with these digital tools. So he kind of brought me into the, into at least the, I don't know, 10 years ago, tech, tech age. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm still, yeah. I'm sure very far behind, but um, yeah, great artist. But uh, one of the things that sounds interesting to me that you're describing, Jim, is you, I think of your work as very indie, you know, you've worked with Oni and Image and a lot of companies outside of the Marvel DC work for hire model. And it sounds like from a very beginning, like you're seeing the pitfalls of working for a company in that work for hire basis, right? When Huddlestone's getting his comps and throwing them away, or you're having people tamper with your artwork. Is that something that you're also talking to your roommates about sort of the business part of making comics? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we were so desperate just to get any sort of work and 
Also, you guys, in terms of comics history, remember when Mike and I were getting in lines at conventions to show our work as a team, this was 93, 94, 95. And every editor we talked to was like, hey, there might not be a comic book industry in a year. So we were also faced with the dilemma of we've been building these portfolios and now everyone's telling us that this industry is collapsing and might not even be an option. So it was sort of do or die time where we were, like I said, I, I had this inking thing going and trying to break in with Mike as a team, but I also had my self-published thing coming from the early nineties DIY aesthetic and being around people in school that were doing their own zines, throwing their own underground parties, uh, you know, going out wheat pasting flyers for events. Um, and so all of that kind of fed into the hustle as well of whoever will pay attention to us, whoever will kind of take us. But yeah, Jim, I think I, I know what you're saying. Cause it, it, it was to me personally, kind of like a red flag of like, maybe this DC Marvel thing isn't going to work out for me, you know? And it, it's just weird. To, like we had these incredible samples of us as a team and it was just bizarre to me that an editor wouldn't include me in hiring Mike to work on a, work on a book. It was, it was very disappointing and, and uh, also nonsensical. Yeah. I think that that's evolved quite a bit the way editors work with talent today. Um, I, it's not perfect, but I think it's evolved a long way from even the nineties, the way there, there was kind of a, I don't know, a, a divide or the way talent was treated. I think, um, hopefully it's definitely improved. Uh, there's probably still a ways to go there. Uh, you mentioned like, you know, um, people doing wheat pasting posters and making their own zines. That was another thing I wanted to ask you about. You, you have influences far beyond what I think of as like a Marvel DC comic style which a lot of us grew up with. Can you talk about some of those influences? Were you looking at like street art, you know, these people that were doing wheat pasting posters up and, you know, screen prints and zines, like, was that something that was, you were looking at and putting into your art? Yeah, yeah, I, I met some kids in high school in St. Louis that were self-publishing mini comics and throwing like punk rock shows in the city. And that aesthetic of like, oh, you don't have to wait for people to, give you permission to do things. You can just do things and make them. And, um, you know, I, I, at the same time of discovering Tank Girl in the early 90s in school, I, I was also discovering like um, the underground co comics of Crumb in Spain and all of that. And Crumb to me seemed like, well, this cat was doing that DIY hustle on the streets of San Francisco in, in the 60s. So, to, to me, it was almost like us in the 90s were doing that version of what the Zap Comics guys were doing. The other thing that happened, too, was the Crumb documentary came out at this time. And I went and saw it like opening weekend in the small art theater in Kansas City. And uh, was that it was like 94, 95 and was just, you know, completely blown away by the movie. And it was funny, the scene where he um, is talking about he took this drug that he think, thinks was LSD and it had this dramatic effect on him. And it shows like his sketchbook page from that time. And I like jumped out of my seat when I saw that. Cause I was like, that's the exact same thing that happened to me, you know? Cause as soon as I got to college and got away from my parents, I started experimenting with 
psychedelics and became kind of like an everyday weed smoker. And uh, the only reason I mention it is, is um, doing that, it immediately removed like this wall of inhibition in the front of my brain of like, what drawing can be, what comics can be. And I'm not advocating this to anyone out there because it these things affect everyone differently. You know, you there might be someone who takes psychedelics and it's a nightmarish experience for them. I'm just saying for me, it kind of added into all this other stuff, new stuff that I was taking in with being in art school, being around new people, absorbing the past of the 60s and 70s, the underground movement, the current 90s DIY movement, being roommates with the two best guys in the illustration program. How lucky did I get with that? And then taking all this, mixing it into my own stew, adding my own little secret herbs and spices into that and coming out with what I wanted to present to the world really as a creator. And also doing, you know, taking these substances, it kind of freed me to be comfortable enough to write my own material and write kind of from a subconscious level of there's some stories in Cosmic Toast that are just about me and my life and um, a breakup I had with an, a girlfriend, you know, and so I, I felt like this kind of freeing um, uh, green light to just to just sort of do what I wanted in this wonderful format that allows that. There's a great visual example that can be found on YouTube, and I've I've made note of it before, certainly in videos with you, Jim. But it's a video where you're inking with a toothbrush, and that's <laughs> and that's something that I sent around to uh, to a lot of my friends, man, who who use different weird inking implements. To uh, you know, they're not precious with the line, like they they allow for some spontaneity, and uh, I wonder if that that speaks to this idea of like drawings can be out there, drawings can be anything. Yeah, definitely. And uh, also rediscovering Sienkiewicz and Ralph Steadman. And I mean, the one good thing about being in art school is I, I was around and drinking and hanging out and partying with kids from other departments. So seeing what people were doing in the screen printing department, the painting department, this aesthetic of bringing looser influences in, different tools, different techniques, um, just being around, like I said, Mike, I mean, he was a technical master and was uh, really obsessed with Kent Williams at the time. And he figured out how to do that Kent Williams, like oil wash style of painting, which I don't know how he figured all this <laughs> shit out, but you know, he was, do he's like doing these gorgeous pencil drawings on an illustration board, sealing it with clear gesso and then doing oil washes on top of it. And then, dabbing out the white highlights with an old rag and then going in and doing some dry brushing on top of that uh with oil i don't you know just shit that so all of this stuff <laughs> what was uh just the ingredients of inspiration that were going on at the time and you know when you're young and your brain is still forming and and you're excited and taking in new things i feel like you learn and improve so much quicker so I'm 18, 19, 20, taking all this stuff in. And it, it was kind of like right place, right time. And um, also being away from my family made a, a big impact too, because 
I was raised in a household with like a very strict uh, Middle Eastern father, uh, ex-military kind of guy. And there was a lot of rules and a lot of structure and uh, Catholicism. And uh, my parents are great people, really good people. But what I'm saying is there was a lot of structure there for the first 18 years of my life. A lot of arguments, a lot of fights of me just trying to even get out of the house dressed in my weird like mm-hmm. punk outfit or what, you know, whatever. Um, and, and, and being free from that, I really felt like for the first time in my life, I can really, I really want to figure out like who I am and what I want to do. And I, I was really determined and on like a pretty serious mission of um, proving to everyone that I could do this thing. You know, do you think that uh, like a work ethic came out of that discipline? Because you're talking about doing commercial jobs while going to school and, you know, kind of exploring all this different art. And I even think of your work now like you're very prolific. So I assume that that's still a part of your practice is a, you know, pretty disciplined, I don't know, time, regiment, schedule, something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I had this great breakthrough moment with my dad years ago when he came to one of my signings in St. Louis and was like looking at all the books and on my table. And he was kind of like, man, how did you, how did you do all this? Like, how did you? And I said, you know, remember the discipline of you waking me up on the weekends to mow the lawn and wash cars and keep my room clean and shine my shoes, like really kind of OCD level of uh, structure and, we all had to be into the be in the house at a certain time at night or we didn't get dinner, you know, very structured. I was like, I just took all that discipline and I don't care about keeping my room clean, dad, or my car clean. I never cared about that shit, but I just took that structure and discipline and put it into my craft. And he was kind of like, oh, okay. And it, it, it was, it was a lightning bolt moment for him of like, oh shit. Okay. So I, I said, you know, it really, you really taught me a lot. You, I really benefited from it. It was just a, a different um, purposing of that discipline. Like, you know, to this day, I still don't keep keep the uh, cleanest car or whatever. But <laughs> I, I, I don't I don't miss deadlines, and I'm pretty structured, you know, with the way I work. So it it all did work out really well. It's fascinating know. to think about because your your brother successful DJ and stuff. So so clearly, yeah. like stuff was instilled in you guys and it makes me think of like there are these sibling tandems who who exist have success and are in different disciplines like i think of guys like there's a dude greg greg Muir was like one of the z boys from dogtown and his brother is mike Muir from uh suicidal tendencies oh yes you know yeah. what i mean so it's like uh two completely different disciplines but successful and that comes from somewhere or like when you have you know, Archie Manning is your dad and you have two all-star sons, like something's happening in that house. Yeah, it ain't right. nepotism that, that made those dudes at, at that level. We could keep going down the uh, wrestling examples, like the Von Erics. Could be some nepotism <laughs> with some of that, man. Yeah, maybe not. Some of those one. boys have soft bodies. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing, Jim, that, I, that, I, that interests me with your work and career is that you do a lot of comics, very prolific as a cartoonist, but then I see like you do a lot of other art. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I wonder if that comes from like the freelance background. Uh, you mentioned at one point saying yes to everything. So I assume that had to stop. 
uh, somewhere along the way, but you're still doing a lot of different types of art in addition to comics. So can you talk about that as part of your practice? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, like I mentioned, when I was in Arizona working on Clerks and my comics career was taking off, I also had the benefit of being associated with Bomb Shelter DJs, Z Trip, Emil, and Radar, and doing live art, big life paintings behind them on stage every week at the number one uh, club event in Arizona. And that, that got me the attention of um, like record executive people. And I started branching out into that world of like album covers, flyers, and um, something happened with, um, I started freelancing from Marvel in the late nineties, early two thousands, like Brian Bendis brought me in to do like ultimate Marvel team up issue nine, I believe it was. And working with Axel Alonso on a bunch of one shots and two issue kind of things at Marvel. One day Axel revealed to me, I thought everyone loved the stuff that was going on. Uh, Marvel was suddenly bringing in indie weirdos like me and Peter Bag and Craig Thompson and stuff to do some Marvel stuff. I thought this was probably, I thought this was universally loved by everyone. And Axel revealed to me one day on the phone that him and the editorial staff in-house all loved it because it was something different to look at. But the regular Wednesday warrior Marvel zombies hated this shit. So to me, that was kind of like uh, a moment of like, oh shit, okay, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do just comics full time because if I'm not ever going to become like the monthly artist on a, a series, or I'm only making a certain amount of money doing creator owned stuff at Oni or image, I'm going to have to find other things to supplement my income. And that kind of helped with my hustle of, of getting work and in outside areas. And that led to doing like character design and animation, advertising work, like, the Colt 45 malt liquor ad campaign in 2007, 2008, working with Nike, uh, Nissan. Um, and then, you know, eventually I moved to LA in 2003 and just being in that community, I was meeting producers and studio people and, and getting offers to do cool things. So that added to, you know, my whole portfolio and experience and, Again, you guys, like I, I still was saying yes to everything. So even weird shit, like our buddy, Rob Schraub, who did the Scud comics, he was, he co-created with Dan Harmon, um, the Sarah Silverman program. And Rob hit me up and was like, Hey dude, you, you paint, you do like murals. Like, can you come down and paint the sets for Sarah's show? Like the, um, the coffee shop location. We need like a mural, we need the menus and the cups and like logos and all that done. And I just said, yes. And I went down and I didn't know that like you had to use certain color combinations on the wall for that would show that show up on camera. So I started painting this mural and then this art director guy came in and started yelling at me because I was using like wrong color combinations. So, but the advantage is, I knew the director, the director is in charge. So I called Rob, Rob had to come down and, you know, mediate, play, play the peacemaker between me and this angry art director and be like, let's figure out what are the right colors? Like, what do we need to do here? Like, it's not a big deal, but just those experiences of, um, 
saying yes, but sometimes uh, failing or having it blow up in your face. I noticed that like a lot of people will usually give you a second chance if you screw something up. So maybe don't screw up two or three times, but you know, I, I was always, I always felt like if I make made a mistake, I'm still learning on the job and most people will go along with that. I haven't seen any of the, the Nissan stuff and, and some of the ad work, but certainly that quote 45 piece, that campaign, it was a campaign trucks, all kinds of shit. Uh, they were hiring you to be you very clearly. I actually kind of think that that's one of the crowning achievements of my career is it's not a specific gig or project that I'm most proud of. It's the fact that I turned my work into a brand as cliche as that is to say, and that brand, you know, attracts people that like what you just said, they, they hire me to be me and they're not expecting to get any different result from that. So I've been very fortunate with that kind of thing. And I'm like, I'm currently doing a freelance thing for Fortnite right now, you know, hugely popular video game, obviously. And I've worked for them in the past and it's just one of those things of like great pay, video games pay uh, top dollar if you're an illustrator and get to have fun and be you. Like you really can't ask for anything more than that, you know? and. I talked, cool. I talked with that art director one one time, man. Like I just did, I decided not to not to do the thing, but he's he did the, it was a Zoom call, you know, and we were bullshitting the Fortnite guy, and behind him was a half finished God page by Chris Ware, and I'm like, dude, you're running game on me right now, man. <laughs> I know what this is. I see what's yeah. happening right here. He did, he did his homework before yeah, yeah, he made yeah. that Zoom call. What do I set up back yep. here? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> Jim, do he's you like, feel you like... have to work. You have to work with me, Ed. Look okay. at. Look at what I have. Look, all, kind, taste. all kinds of eye candies. Um, do you feel like those jobs, like uh, advertising jobs, uh, you know, television or animation design jobs, do you feel like those inform your comics? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, it's, uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I kind of have a specific approach to when I'm doing my own comics and especially writing my own stuff because it's just my world and my aesthetic. Um, so, but all of those jobs and all, all the comics, it all relates to, to me, like, can you deliver the goods? Like, can you deliver what people want and, and satisfy the art director, the editor? I kind of like that challenge. Like, that's one thing I got out of the illustration program in school is, Hey, you're, you're, you know, you're beholden to, um, a client to make a deadline, but also like make them happy. So there is maybe some compromise in there. Whereas with the comics, especially when I'm writing my own stuff, there really isn't much compromise because I'm sort of doing whatever I want. And if image is publishing my work, man, image just sort of publishes it as is there's no editorial uh, interference from them. So I think image doesn't get enough credit for that part. You know, like, like um, Ed, you work with Fanographics, and, and I've talked to Fanographics about how much editing. We talked to Gary Groth, you know, see our shoot interview with Gary, and they're often very hands-off on, you know, letting the cartoonists be themselves. I don't hear people say that about Image, but that's also been my experience, where it was like, I turn stuff in, what I want to do, and it's not, a, you know, there's no editorial, hey, change this, or we think this would work better kind of stuff. And I think that's an underappreciated or under talked about element of what image does in addition to 
you know, having a space for creator-owned books. Yeah, it seems like it, in these better independent publishers, um, when they when they anoint you and say, we will publish your work, like, they're buying you. Like, like turn it in. Get it in on time. Like, let's hit marks. But your thing is your thing. Yeah, and I mean, that's the other interesting thing about Image, too, is like you're sort of gambling on yourself because if you don't want the inner editorial interference it's on you whether this product you put out is good or not or is something that someone the consumer wants you know so and it's it's certainly on you to promote the the thing and and, and get it yeah in front of readers i feel like this could be a good segue to get to girl scouts you know we talked clerks a little bit we talked the gen x we did a whole video on that that's either forthcoming or uh, <laughs> or you watched it yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, but Girl Scouts early Oni book has a does it have a genesis before that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did these self published books in '95, two volumes of that, and uh, that was just all inspired by my obsession with uh, Tank Girl and Jamie Hewlett. You know, drawing cool girls with with guns and. Uh, with a you know middle finger to all authority uh, as the aesthetic in there as well. So how did you self publish um, those, man? Are those a small press co op? Like they 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 look familiar. That that kind of uh, aesthetic of these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th this was just you know eleven by seventeen, folded in half, uh, done at the local copy shop. Sick. Uh, Making fun of uh, bad girl early '90s comics, <laughs> right there, by the way. Or celebrating it. Or celebrating it. Is that stuff reprinted anywhere? This, uh, these are all. I did a book through Image called Forty Ounce Collected, big thick trade, and it collects all this early stuff. So the Girl Scout stuff and Cosmic Toasts. Um, I believe that book is still in print. Uh, if not, you know, at some point though, I do want to do like a deluxe collection of all the Girl Scout stuff because uh, Stone Ghost is basically the fourth volume of, of everything I've done. Um, and yeah, man, it's just, it's, to me, it's a universe I set up for myself where I can really just have fun with these characters, write and draw whatever I want and um, bring people along on this kind of like gonzo inspired ride that is this universe. So it, it's just fun. I feel like I know the characters well. It was also with Tank Girl um, being inspiration, being in art school and being around art school girls. They were kind of the first girls that I was around that I was like, these are like my kind of people, you know, chicks that wore like Doc Martens and smoked clove cigarettes and listened to like Bauhaus and you know <laughs> goth music it the girls in high school that was that was the, I, I couldn't really relate to a lot of people in that that time but going to art school and being around cool girls with fashion and attitude that kind of added into this world as well so that was a cool piece of inspiration for it yeah it seems like you could almost like document and diagram the 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 influence that that sort of thing has on guys because like clouds with the ghost world chicks certainly jamie hewlett with tank girl yeah that's the first thing i thought about whenever you're describing like the art school girls having an influence it's like oh yeah i'm sure that was an influence on tank girl yeah 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 and it's it's interesting because i eventually got to work on some of the tank girl comics with alan martin the co-creator 
and we did a book called everybody loves tank girl. And, um, I was kind of asking him when we were starting to work together, like, so my impression of when I first started reading tank girl comics as a new marijuana user was these guys are getting high and making these books. These guys are partying while they're making these books. And he was like, yes, yes, I can confirm that because it, a lot of the stories are nonsensical and very strange. And I'm not saying Jamie was like high at the drawing table while he was working on this stuff, but they were definitely going out at night, enjoying the London, you know, rave scene, early EDM, the introduction of early ecstasy, the drug, the fashion, all of that. I feel like these young guys were processing and kind of putting it into physical manifestation through these tank girl strips they were doing for Deadline Magazine. And Deadline was reporting on this very scene that I'm talking about. So the version of that for me was being in Kansas City, being around art school people, also being around this underground hip hop community. There was a buddy of mine at school named Jeremy who was putting out a publication called Flavor Pack. And it was a self-published magazine all about art, zine culture, poetry, hip hop, punk. And Jeremy was even throwing flavor pack events where he was getting DJs to show up, B-boys would show up and break dance, graffiti art was happening. We had the four elements of hip hop going on. So my scene in KC was almost like this Midwestern American version of the deadline UK tank girl scene if i can be so bold as to make that as a comparison but to me in later years processing all of this and all the influence that's kind of how i see it as it as it went down you know i love those hewlett tank girls uh from deadline they're so fascinating for all the reasons you describe and then like i'll read like odyssey and it's not the same flavor and i always think like it has to do with the writing process of those comics like they're there must have been a chaotic element in the writing of a lot of the deadline tank girl as opposed to a more traditional script and story structure. And I wonder, Jim, what your experience was like. Uh, was Alan Martin sending you like a detailed script? Were you guys talking about ideas, you know, like sort of collaborating and forming plot? Like how, what was that creative experience like on tank girl for you? Yeah, it was cool. Uh, I mean, it was all, our book was comprised of all short stories. So he was sending me full scripts for all the stories, but he knew from like working with Jamie, he was like, these are the scripts, but feel free to interpret this any way you want. You know, feel free to add and subtract panels, feel free. So man, on it, on the book I did, I went hog wild and added tons of like background jokes. Um, I gave Tank Girl long hair, which she really didn't have previously in a couple stories. I, I, so the fashion, the hairstyles, the aesthetic, that was all up to the artist. And Alan was even cool enough to like, like my name goes before his name in, in the credits of, of the book. So it was always, you know, Hewlett and Martin's Tank Girl. And with me and uh, Rufus Daglow, Ashley Wood, the different collaborators that were working with Alan, it was always artist name first, Martin second. So I was, you know, I was just fully penciling and inking these stories and just sending him completely finished art with, with the caveat of uh, here it is. I, I hope you like it, you know, and he, 
he dug it. He was totally into it. And then, you know, the lettering was added later, obviously. But um, yeah, he was always very uh, liberal about uh, just do whatever you want with this stuff. That makes so a lot it was of sense cool. for that character, I think. Yeah. It was cool. And, you know, I also got, even though I've only had limited emailing with Jamie, uh, I mean, I did get his seal of approval as well, which was important to me. And we all worked on a book together uh, called 21st Century Tank Girl that Alan did as a Kickstarter. It was hugely successful. But Jamie was actually in that book doing new sequentials. So me, Jamie, Warwick Johnson, um, a whole host of other artists. Uh, and, and But just to be in the same book as Jamie as well was like a huge honor for me. That's always huge, man. You got to get your couple of degrees of separation and just doing Tank Girl is like close enough. But to be in the same book, you know, that's some fly yeah. ass shit, dude. Not, not a lot of people could say that. Yeah, it's really yeah. awesome. Um, Jim, what's your writing process like? You know, doing doing Girl Scouts, for instance, your latest Girl Scout. What is, uh, how do you write? Because I always think of your comics as being very lively and it feels like there's a lot happening in the art stage. So how much are you going into a book like Girl Scouts, Stone Ghost, script, uh, notes, any ideas? Yeah, I mean, I always have stories like stewing around in my mind for a long time. And then... I always try and make a point of writing all my ideas down as soon as I get them, because you're not going to remember later. You know, I think we've all made that mistake of, uh, oh, that's a great idea. I'll remember it later. You don't ever remember <laughs> it. So uh, I have notebooks around the studio with, you know, paragraph long ideas, or maybe just one sentence of an idea. And I also use the notes option on my phone a lot when I'm walking down the street and I have an idea. So basically I have these notebooks and um, I start putting together like a pu like puzzle pieces, the structure of what I want to do. I figure out, I want to do six issues. What's the breakdown of the overall story? What's uh, the main character's conflict or what are they after? Um, what happens in each issue and what is the cliffhanger of each issue to keep the reader coming back for more. Um, I also use the Dan Harmon circular story structure of in every story you do, you introduce your protagonist and you introduce what does that protagonist want? Very, very simple, basic idea of getting a story going. And then what happens to that character on that journey of they eventually do get what they want, but then something else happens and something else happens, you know? So, um, and then, you know, I'm also thinking visually, obviously, as well, like, well, what do I what do I want to draw? You know, it's an obvious thing to say, but with this new Girl Scout Stone Ghost series, I wanted to do a sci fi thing. I wanted to do something strange in outer space. I wanted to introduce a brand new Girl Scout character. I wanted to introduce these weird supporting characters, uh, a badass grindhouse canon film style guy named turtleneck jones who's a no-nonsense outer space bounty hunter with a mullet and always wears a turtleneck i wanted to introduce a weird psychotic uh, cyborg assassin character named nadis who you don't really know if he's good or bad um and uh, my little octopus character that i seem to draw a lot named gordy who's kind of the cartoony sidekick um 
I don't want, I don't know if, I don't know, I don't want to say Orko from Masters of the Universe, but for some reason that character popped in my mind just now, like the little floating guy who's the, the funny cartoonish sidekick. But that, that was visually, that was kind of my decision making of, okay, that's what I want to do. How does this all break down? And I had a really good friend pass away in 2017 from brain cancer. And I kind of wanted to, subtly introduce this idea of loss in the story as well. Our main character, Dio, is dealing with her lover who has died. And my friend kind of takes the place of that character. So I didn't have to literally write about my buddy who died or, or disrespect his memory by not getting his character right. But I could add these little subtle things of him and what happened with his passing into the story without ma it making it this um, sad thing. Cause I don't really think I have the writing chops to full, pull off a full blown, like sad story, you know? And, and there's just, when you see my art and my style, there's just this instant um, levity and a kind of silliness that goes along with it. And I'm a huge, huge comedy fan, huge humor fan. And I feel like that there's just a lot of comedy injected into my work anyway it's kind of inevitable and so that mix of like comedy and tragedy was also part of the formula that i wanted to experiment with with this story if if that makes sense checking out stuff like your instagram uh and you know we looked at that generation x book uh which leads to the clerk stuff which leads to the early girl scouts work uh nowadays man it really feels like you're going for it in ink not too much pencil on on the page man but a whole lot of heavy lifting done with the pens with the brushes all that stuff that's my favorite thing in the world is just drawing with black ink i mean it's just there's nothing more satisfying and gratifying than that than just having that black line hit the paper man and the textural quality all of all of it it will never ever get old for me, you know, and one of the things that happened in art school as well is I just started becoming an everyday sketchbook drawer in just straight ink. You know, we all had that Fanagraphics Bilson Cabbage sketchbook. And there's that famous quote in the sketchbook where he says something like, um, I'm going to fuck it up, but it's like, I often draw just directly in pen because if I mess up the drawing, it will let me know immediately. It will laugh at me immediately. Not the pen, but the drawing, something along those lines. And I, I just thought that that was such a like badass confident statement to make of like, if you just go for it directly in ink, it kind of forces your brain to think about things first before you start laying it down. And I've gotten comfortable enough in my ink style now that it's like you said, Ed, the, the pencils are sort of just like, this really raw blueprint of figuring out the storytelling and the placement and the pacing. But then everything on top of that is basically done in ink where I'm sort of doing this balancing act of like, well, I hope I don't fuck this up, you know, but I'm just going to go for it and let's see what happens. Sometimes it backfires and I have to redo a drawing or, or uh, you know, paste a panel on top of a panel that I, messed up or whatever, but I really love that kind of go for it type uh, 
attitude and spirit of, you know, your style, you know, your work. Like I've been doing this for 25 years. Like let's, let's, you know, really bring it to the table and see what we can do with all this. And now that I'm coloring all my own work as well, I started experimenting with mixed media years ago with incorporating some um, watercolor, uh, colored pencil, spray paint, the traditional Zipatone. But you guys, I also just got the new, uh, a new iPad and I'm rocking the uh, digital colors and Procreate. And I, I was using the Wacom before where I didn't have that pen the, directly on the screen. And now that I'm working directly on that screen with the coloring, it's opening up like a whole new world for me of, oh shit, now I have a whole new level of experimentation that I can figure out with all of this. So I've been newly re re rejuvenated with a new tool when you discover a new thing of like, okay, well, I've got the working on paper on ink thing down. Now I'm scanning all this and importing it into my iPad and I'm going to have a whole other set of tricks to access with this uh, Procreate stuff. Yeah, it's an incredible tool. I always look at your work and sometimes it is the stuff on Instagram and it feels like you must have like a closet full of tools. Um, yeah. I don't know if there are any favorites. Years ago, you introduced me to like chisel tip pens, um, which I really enjoy drawing with. Uh, any any favorite tools that you're drawing with these days? Yeah, man, that Pilot Parallel pen, that uh, metal tip that um, where Ashley Wood right there, that's an original painting of his. Uh, he introduced me to those pens in 2007 in San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, the same year I convinced him to come out and do live art with uh, me and David Mack, Scott Morse. He painted that live and I grabbed it at the end of the night. I was like, hey, can I bring that home? He was <laughs> like, yeah, man, it's all good. But um, that tool is is one of my absolute favorites. Uh, Japanese brush pens. Ed mentioned earlier the um, uh, the toothbrush, you know, for textural stuff, spatter and... When I, when I was still living in LA, I started hanging out with some of the mixed media guys like Jason Sean Alexander, uh, who does Philadelphia at Image. Jason was an, an understudy of Kent Williams. And Jason had a studio downtown in LA right next to Kent Williams. So I would go kick it at Jason's studio and be seeing all of his kind of mixed media things he was doing. And then at the end of the day, we would go to next door to Kent's studio and see all the mind-blowing fine art, oil-painted, figurative, gorgeous work that he was doing. And Kent is, is uh, with this brilliant artist, Zoe Milk. She was in that stable of artists. Sienkiewicz was around at the time. So all of us were kind of getting together and having nights where we would um, hang out at our buddy's photo studio and get models to show up and do figure drawing uh, sessions together, hang out and just learn from each other, experiment. And I would always make it a point to sit right next to Sienkiewicz <laughs> for those drawing sessions. Like everyone was intimidated by him. And I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to go sit like literally next to the guy and just look over and just see what he's doing, you know, and, and just, learning through uh, osmosis again, like I mentioned with Huddleston. And we did this crazy thing, man. In 2016, Bill hit me up and was doing a um, 
fundraising event for Bernie Sanders uh, and, and hit up me and Jason Sean to come out and paint with him at this event that was being live streamed at Meltdown Comics. So I'm not like the biggest political guy, but when Sienkiewicz hits you up to do live art, you say yes, of course. So we showed up and we did this crazy piece together and Bill was on one side painting Hillary Clinton. I was in the middle doing a portrait of Trump and Jason was on the side doing, um, oh shit, I'm drawing a total blank. Uh, one of the guys running on the Republican ticket, I don't, whatever. Um, so anyway, seeing Bill in, in action, in motion, doing his painted mixed media stuff and like Mike Huddleston and all the LA artists came down just to watch this, just to witness this sorcery going on, you know? And just standing next to Bill and painting, it made me a better painter. Like I was suddenly like rendering and doing things in paint where I was like, how do I know how to do this? Oh, I- Like some of his R is like- The magic of the master. <laughs> and there was this great moment where he had this fully rendered Hillary Clinton, crazy looking psychotic face that he had done, total Bilson Cabbage style. And he took green paint and just painted over the entire face. And there was this like gasp throughout the audience, like, fuck, what, he, what is he doing? He ruined it. He ruined the piece. What's he doing? And then the master, Sienkiewicz, he like bends down and grabs the, this rag dipped in, you know, whatever toxic chemicals. And he like <laughs> brushes out all the highlights and stuff. And I'm, I'm watching him as I'm painting at the same time. So I'm, I'm trying to process what he's even doing. But two minutes later, it's back to a fully rendered face in the Sienkiewicz style. And, you know, I was talking to people afterwards and all, all these artists that were there and everyone was like, dude, I have no idea what he was doing. He's just a wizard. He's an alien sorcerer from a magical planet that none of us will understand. But it was cool, man, I like having that opportunity because it really did make me work and approach the canvas in a different way. So that's a very, very long-winded story. I apologize He's, for uh Sikavich is that guy <laughs> though, man. Technique. Because uh you could find you could find YouTube videos with him on uh you know online and he's he's giving demos and every single one of them there's a stage where it's like how's he gonna get out of that? Like what what what's going on here? Like it looked like something, now it doesn't look like anything. And then it, it is like bleach and shit. He he sprays on artwork like yep. who whoever heard about putting bleach on on your paintings and shit. And then you know that just turns out that it's now patina on a rusty car bumper, and that's how you do that. It's 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 really really cool. It's incredible. And him and also uh, you know I would occasionally run into into Dave Cho in town when I lived in L.A. And he's another guy whose work I greatly admire and you guys have had him on the show but he's another dude that had that totally like fearless go for it attack the canvas attitude and just see what comes out like just with Dave it's like there's no fear because if he fucks something up he just directly paints right over it or he incorporates the mistake into his work you know so there's really no 
wrong with his type of work because he's going to master that anyway. He's going to, he's going to spin that into gold anyway, Dude. you know, and I have, I have great admiration for that level of uh, like just pure balls to be able to approach your craft in that way. I saw David Cho take a piece of string, dip it in like ink, put it like laid it down on a piece of paper, put a piece of paper over top of it to apply pressure onto that ink string, pulled the string, saw what he had on that piece of paper, turned it into Beta Ray Bill, dude. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Jimmy, talk about fearlessness with those guys, but I mean, like getting up in front of a, an audience to live paint uh, next to Bill Sienkiewicz, what about you? Like, are, are you facing fear whenever that, that opportunity shows up and how do you overcome that? Well, I got over that quick because I had, like I said, I had a weekly dose of that when I lived in Arizona, taking on the job of being a live painter in a really popular uh, nightclub every Thursday night. So with a little liquid courage, you're, everybody's <laughs> boozing and, and, the, and the strobe lights are going and the music is, uh, you know, ear deafening levels that kind of trains you real quick to adapt to that level of performance. And it was cool because, you know, I became really good friends with Scott Morris in the early days of Oni and Scott and I kind of introduced that live art party vibe to San Diego Comic-Con and like maybe 98 or 99 was our first party where we start, him and I started painting live in front of those audiences, but we would also grab guys like, like I mentioned, David Mack or um, Ben Temple Smith and just, you know, different people and, and kind of almost forcing people to be like, grab a, grab a big ass graffiti marker, step up to this map board or this canvas and let's just have some fun and, you know, see what happens. So it was, it, it was cool, man. It, it was uh, something different and something that kind of, I think it's important for artists to like have their comfort zone, but also get out of that comfort zone and, and expand your wheelhouse of what you're capable of doing, you know, challenge yourself. You, you will surprise yourself, you know, and I've never been complacent on um, having one distinct style. I think, a lot of mainstream, especially superhero comic book artists have to stick with their signature style that makes them known. And I, I got kind of lucky early on developing a style that for me, I can always morph it, push it and twist it. And it still fits into my, my branding, but it doesn't have to remain static. I think it also comes back to when you're talking about saying yes to everything you do end up uh, developing some muscles that maybe you didn't even know you wanted to develop. You know, some interesting thing, some different thing comes across your desk and it's like, you know, if you're saying yes to all this stuff, suddenly you got to learn how to do this thing or that thing. And, right. and that can serve an artist well. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, also for me, man. I mean, my, I don't know if, about you guys, but my approach to drawing and just doing art, doing comics in general is like, I feel like I'm a student for life totally. and I'll never have all the answers and that's okay. And anytime you meet an artist who seems like he's convinced he has all the answers, that to me is like a warning sign. Oh, of, totally. Oh, I, I, I don't know about that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I like it, man. Like I, 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 I like that there's always these unanswered pieces. There's always stuff to learn. I feel like in some way, 
maybe it staves off Alzheimer's or something because you're, because <laughs> because you're constantly engaged and 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 you know using using your head in in those ways, man. And it's clearly on display with your work. But listen, Jimmy, we're 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 wrapping up here, man. So uh, let's hit the latest book. Let people know where to get it. Tell people about the serialized stuff that you're doing online and and we'll wrap things up most definitely uh girl scouts stone ghosts my latest and greatest creator owned series through image comics available at a comic shop near you or score copies sign copies jimmafu.com also guys I, i didn't mention earlier but thank you so much quotes from jim and ed on the back of the book kayfabe approved also bill sinkavich and uh my current gig is brand new Girl Scouts creator-owned online comics at zestworld.com. You can go to that website, subscribe, three different subscription tiers for you to choose from. I'm working in the uh, vertical scroll, like a uh, webtoon style format for these comics. And it's been really fun and exciting for me because it's a whole new storytelling challenge working in that format. So I'm digging that a lot. And um what else? Social media uh, at Jim Mafud on Instagram and Twitter. And before we go, you guys, I just want to say thank you so much for having me. We're old friends and I have nothing but love and respect for you guys. I've met a lot of the kayfabe community out, out there, you know, shout out to Eli Schwab and the gang. Everyone loves you guys and loves what you're doing. I know you don't like taking compliments, but like fuck it, I'm gonna say it anyway, and so, so I'll just I'll just end it on that. Shit, man, we like taking yeah, compliments. I'll put that at the beginning. <laughs> Don't start okay, that well, <laughs> I was I was wrong. There's been times where people have thanked you at the end, and you seem uncomfortable with with maybe taking the compliment. It, it I don't know if it's an East Coast thing or, <laughs> but uh, you, you guys have that attitude of like that's cool. Let's move on and keep making shit. You know how it goes, man. We got we got primo artists we don't need we know how how much we roll and all that kind of stuff Jimmy, what, do you, what do you have out there man <laughs> hulk grand design the treasury edition the oversized collection of hulk grand design is now available for pre-order at your comic shops at your bookstores wherever you pick up books uh order that now it's coming out in december in time for christmas so order a couple of them it's perfect gift wrap it in a red ribbon and you are all set for christmas this year <laughs> and uh, join me on patreon.com slash jim rug where you can see a lot more of my comics art you can download some of my out of print zines and mini comics there red room trigger warnings of trade paperback is hitting stores in september it's gonna be my 10th solo book dude put out a book a year That's for a the big. past decade congratulations thank you sir thank you uh murder nice. on the dark web for fun and profit name of the game anti-social network was uh the first round of red room comics uh same s- sort of format but if you see those issues out in the wild, scoop them up. Every issue is self-contained. Uh, it is banned in numerous places, including 10 comic shops. So you got to hit up my link tree in the description below this video. Uh, you can uh, order and pre-order current and future comics or hit up the Patreon. You can read the comics today. I put up new strips every Tuesday. More than 250 pages up there for the price of $3, man. What else do we have out there, Jimmy? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe e-newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise and fanny packs at the <laughs> links below this video. Hey, Jim Mafood, how about you give these guys the marching orders and we'll get the hell out of here. Make more comics. There it is. <laughs>